while the choir is going that way, I'm going to go this way and invite you to take out your Bibles. Uh, I have to tell you, if you're going to use your Bible today, you're going to be moving fast. So we're going to be putting verses on the screen to help facilitate for you because we're going to be covering a, a lot of ground. Now, while the choir is coming back down, I also want to take a moment to talk to you about our Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. Today, we have prepared, the deacons have selected a new method for serving you today, and I'm going to tilt it just slightly. You might see that there's a bread tray in the middle of uh, these trays now. So when it comes to you, when the tray gets passed to you, you might want to take a cup out first, you might want to put it in the pew rack, and then you'll take your bread square, okay? We eat the bread first and we'll take the cup second. So you might want to do that, or you may be really, really talented and be able to hold all that stuff at one time. And if you think the tray is heavy for you, please allow the usher, the server, or let, uh, hey, here's a thought in communion, right, which is about being together, that we help each other take communion, amen? So you help the person beside you, then they can help you as you are served in just a moment. And uh, we will celebrate the supper. And thank you, deacons, for always being concerned about how we can best celebrate the memorial meal together and honor the Lord in so doing. So you're invited today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, when we come to that time a little bit later in the service, we certainly invite you. It is, as we sometimes call it communion, we sometimes call it the Lord's Supper, it is always the Lord's table. It does not belong to me, it does not belong to this church, it belongs to the Lord, and uh, He is the one who has made it possible. And as we receive it in a, a little bit later, we celebrate His sacrifice, the fact that He has redeemed us. He has made us part of His eternal family. He's entrusted. Now, this is the great thing. He has entrusted the ongoing practice of this to His church. You know what we call that? Stewardship. He has entrusted that to us, and it is our job to celebrate it and remember what it is until He comes again. So that's what we shall do. It is good and it is important to remember these things, important to be good stewards of the celebration of His table. Now, some of you all know the theme. I'm talking about stewardship. We've been talking about it since the very first of the year. Stewardship is that management of what has been entrusted to us. And we've called this series Life Stewardship because the fact of the matter is it's not about some little area of your life over here. Maybe it's your money and you say, oh, I'm, I'm giving 10%, but I don't really have time to serve or find out what my gifts are. Okay, what we're saying is our life stewardship, all of it is important. There is nothing you or I have that is more important than life itself. It is the gift of God to us. So the question for all of us is, how are we doing? How are you, how am I, how are you all over here living your life for God's purposes? Are you living right now with the end in mind, knowing that the day will come when you will give an account to God. I'm going to put this verse up on the screen. I'm not, a, I'm not a scary preacher. I try not to be. It's kind of hard with the way I look. But Romans 14, 12 says this, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Himself, herself, each one of us will give an account to God. That, that, that's just reality staring us in the face. 
Don't think it doesn't matter. It does. Another very pertinent verse for this comes from 1 Corinthians 9. In this passage, Paul wrote, man, I'm telling you, verses uh, 23 to 27, I've asked him to put on the screen for us. Paul's writing about his life. He says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know? In other words, surely you know. You should know. Now you know. We all know, okay? Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Now, he's not saying that in the Christian walk that only one person gets the prize. That's not his point. His point is that there's a prize to be run for. And he says it in the next words. He says, run in such a way. Run in such a way so that you can win. Run in such a way that you uh, are gaining the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. That means, as we said last week, stewardship does not happen by accident. You're not going to wander out of here and all of a sudden become a better steward of your time or your talents or your treasure just automatically. That doesn't happen. It happens by strict training. It happens by discipline. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And then he closes with this part. He says, therefore, therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly, without purpose, but with great intentionality. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, man, hear this verse, after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Wow, that, that's really strong language. You know, happy-go-lucky churches don't really talk about that verse too much. That, this, when you start talking about disqualified, what in the world does that mean? Does that mean I can lose my salvation? That's not what Paul's talking about. Matter of fact, when he talks about running the race so as to win a prize, is the prize heaven? No, no, because you can't win heaven. Heaven is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. That's exactly what the Bible says, those exact words. So Paul is talking about the life we are living as disciples. And indeed, so when we talk about life stewardship, I want to be very, very clear because I, one thing I hate about religion, you might find that odd for a preacher to say, but it's true. One of the things I hate about religion is when we heap stuff onto people's backs, rules for them to carry, things for them. That's not what it's about. I'm not trying to help put weight on your back. I'm trying to tell you, throw some stuff off and run your race well. That's what we're about today. It's not about doing well enough to get into heaven or to earn your salvation. The Bible's very clear that that cannot be done. But it's about how we run our race as saved people, as children of God. How do we live as people who have received a stewardship, people who have been entrusted to carry on the mission of Jesus in this world? And there are actually, if you thought that level of accountability was bad, there are actually two levels 
of accountability that the Scriptures talk about and that are frankly relevant for us today. There's this individual accountability that we just read about in Romans 14, 12. Everyone will give an account. We saw that a minute ago. But there is also a shared accountability, and I'm not going to preach on this today, but I would just say if you want to read about it, go home and read the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Read chapter 1 and 2 where he speaks to the churches. And what you'll discover is that there's a group accountability that comes as well. No, I don't necessarily mean that when we get to heaven that God's going to call up everybody who's ever been a part of Pathways and, and, and you know, give out merit awards and unmerit awards. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is while we are walking here on this earth with this stewardship that has been entrusted to us together, there is a judgment, there is an accountability going on from God for the church as it lives out its life together. And if you, if you don't think that's true, you go and read Revelation chapter 1 and 2. When you read when he says, ah, the problem with you guys over here, you have lost your first love. He didn't say that to a person. He said that to a church. When he warned about becoming lukewarm and being spewed or spit out of his mouth, he didn't say that to a person. He said that to a church. There is a group accountability for how we live our life together. There is a stewardship aspect to communion, to life together as the body of Christ in the world. And, and just, just so you know, those churches that I'm referring to in Revelation chapter 1 and 2, they were the church of Jesus Christ in entire cities not just a local gathering that was meeting at, at Paula's house or at Eddie's house. It's not like that. He, he wrote it to the church in the region. So don't think you can stay home and say, I don't want to be held accountable for what those guys over there are doing. I, I just won't be a part of a local church because you know, local churches are full. Of, yes, they are. But God is going to hold us all accountable because this is you, if you're a Christian, you're a part of the body of Christ in this city. And I, I want you to be a part of this local one, but don't think we can escape our accountability by saying, well, I'm not going, or I I'm, I'm going, but I ain't joining. Uh, that's, that's the real clever uh, response some people give. Oh, well, I mean, I'm not responsible for what goes down over there, you know, because I'm not a voting member. I, I don't do that. Yes, we are all responsible for how we live out the stewardship of our life together. So, before we partake of this supper today, Here's what I want us to do. I want us to take a quick moment to summarize kind of where we have been uh, over these past weeks and looking at life stewardship. And rather than reviewing the sermons themselves and the, and the teaching points, I'm going to ask us to kind of take a, a big picture look to see what it looks like to have a well-lived life of stewardship. Because that's the life that Jesus is inviting you to share today. The, the life that Jesus is inviting you to be a part of today, the life that we are inviting you to be a part of at Pathways Baptist Church, this, the, the life we're inviting you to is not a poorly lived life. We want to invite you and ask you to help us all together to live a well-lived stewardship life individually and together. So that's what we're going to do. Now, one last thing before we dive in today, over the past several weeks, we have not only been preaching about life stewardship, but we have been modeling for you biblical preaching in various types of biblical message. 
Well, you say, Pastor, why are you, I don't really want to know the behind the scenes stuff. It's your job. You do it. No, 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 no. Very important for the church to understand. And, and the reason that we have tried to model various types, and this is yet a different kind today. Again, we're going to be taking like a 30,000-foot look today, a uh, big-picture look, right? That's a different way of preaching. And there are people who say, oh, you know, the only real biblical preaching is that verse-by-verse -verse expository preaching. Now, I grew up in a great church that did expository verse-by-verse -verse preaching. It was a semi-fundamentalist church, and uh, they, they basically taught us that was the only way to preach biblically. And you need to know that it just isn't so. Because here's what happens with verse-by-verse -verse preaching. Sometimes when you're doing Bible teaching verse-by-verse, you absolutely need to understand and correlate it with other verses in other passages in the Bible. It's not just about looking at the Greek word in these three verses of Ephesians, but it's about looking at the bigger picture. What do all the other verses about baptism? What do the other verses about spiritual gifts? What do the other verses about communal life together teach and say? All of that, when that is done well, that's good biblical preaching. And when you hear people talk about expository preaching, the real key to expository preaching is that you are unveiling the Scriptures, that you are opening up the Scriptures and letting them speak, rather than coming to the Scriptures with your preconceived ideas and making them squeeze into a verse that you pick here or there. That's very dangerous kind of preaching there, all right? So not impository, but expository. Let the Bible come out and speak. But that can be done in a wide variety of ways. It can be done in verse by verse, absolutely. But there are times it needs to be done by taking a big picture look, and that's what we're going to do today. So here we go. We're going to look at three big pictures very quickly, two very explicitly from the Scriptures, and the third one is more about application. So the first two pictures we're going to look at are Jesus and Paul. And you might say, well, why are we going to do that? Because we want to look at some examples of lives that were well-lived, that demonstrated not just momentary stewardship, not just stewardship in the area of this thing or that thing, but life stewardship. And we're going to move very quickly because I said these are big pictures. It's not about the details. It's about this, the big swath of the scriptural testimony. So it won't surprise you when I say we're going to start with Jesus because, you know, Jesus is obviously one of our primary examples for everything we do. But it is also true for this topic of life stewardship. Part of the reason Jesus is such a good example for us to use is that in the Bible, we have a trustworthy record that actually covers his entire life. Now, it doesn't cover every day of his life, but it covers from before he was born on this earth until after he died on this earth and then after his resurrection as well. So we have a full record to see the pattern of his life stewardship. And I'm just going to walk through some very familiar passages with you all. Matthew 121 is, is kind of where he, he comes on the scene in the New Testament. The angel comes and said, a child is going to be born to you. You are to call him Jesus, right? We just got through Christmas just a little over a month ago, right? You will call him Jesus because he will do what? Save his people from their sins. So now here's what we know. Before Jesus is born, this is the mission that God the Father has for him. So there's no mystery. This is the mission. So if we're going to get to the end of Jesus's life, and it's going to have been a good steward, what are we going to see? We were going to see that he has fulfilled the mission that was intended from the get-go, okay? 
So, Matthew 1.21. Few years later, we see Jesus at the temple. He's wandered off from his parents. They're all worked up about it. They come around, they find him, and he says, What are you doing searching for me all over the place? I'm right here in the temple teaching the word of God. And his words, famous words, right? I must be about my father's business. Here's the question What's his father's business? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's the business that he said, I'm going to send my son. You're going to call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And so uh, he's got a mission that he's on that he's preparing for. He's about his father's business. He knows the word. He's learning what the father wants, and he's living accordingly. And we know he did pretty well uh, because that was Luke 2.49. Just three verses later in Luke 2.52, it says, right, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. No, if he's growing in Let's, let's keep the train going, right? This is the 30,000 view, 30,000 foot look down. If he's growing in favor with God, what must he be doing? He is about his father's business, and, and that business is going to save his people from their sins. He's been sent on a mission. He's not doing anything to take away from that mission. He is on track with that progress, Okay. Now, I'm going to give you just a few more verses from the life of Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 30, he says, I have come to do the will of my Father. Nothing else. That's what he came to do. He came to do the will of his Father. And so even though he is living himself in accordance with the will of the Father, he is living a righteous life. He is living in a way that brings honor to God. He is also, by so doing, by living a righteous life, he's going to be able to be that righteous sacrifice. Why is that important? Because he's here to do the Father's will. He's about the Father's business. He's growing in favor with God. He was sent to do that. You see the train of stewardship. He is absolutely being faithful to the mission that was given to him. That's John 5.30. Here's another one, John 8. 28. I love this. This reminds me of one of the praise songs that the praise team leads us to, to sing. I'm going to say what you say. I'm going to speak what you speak. And you might think, oh, that's interesting little poetry. Why do they? No, that's Bible, folks. Jesus says, I've come to speak what the Father speaks. I've come to say what the Father says. When we sing those words, that's what we are saying. We're not here willy-nilly to quote Pastor Eddie or quote Pastor Paula or Pastor Jonathan or anybody else or even our faith. That's not really the deal. We're here to say what God says, to speak what God has said. And the only way you can do that is to know the Word, right? So Jesus is on track with this. He's learned the Scriptures. He is speaking. You see Jesus when he preaches again and again, quoting the Old Testament. He has learned the word of the Father. He is speaking what his Father says. He not only says what his Father says, John 10, verses 37 and 38. He said, I do my Father's work. He said, don't believe me unless I'm a good steward. Don't believe me unless I do what my Father does. Wow. I mean, how many of us, what a great message. He's perfectly stewarding what God has asked him to do. And I'm going to skip ahead now because we know that that involved Jesus surrendering himself as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. We know that. 
And you know where I'm headed. He's headed to the cross. And on the cross, he says the three really important words of stewardship. He says, it is finished. What is finished? The will of the Father, the work of the Father, the work that he was assigned to do, the work that in Matthew 121, you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins after his death on the cross, right at the time of his death on the cross, his last, it is finished. I've done what the Father sent me to do. He paid the price for our sins. So see, there are many, many other verses and many, many other stories that we can tell about Jesus, but I'm just asking you to take a quick look and see from beginning to last in his earthly ministry, he absolutely fulfilled the life of stewardship. But lest, uh, I was actually told recently, you know, when we preach from Jesus all the time, some people feel terribly inadequate and, and, and that it's, it's too much to put them uh, under all of that burden. So I'll give us another earthly example. Let's go for Paul for a minute. Paul's got a little more to pick at if we want to. Let's look at Paul's life stewardship. We don't have anything really about his childhood years in the Bible, but we do get a fairly prolonged picture of his adult life. It starts when we meet him in the book of Acts, and he shows up at the stoning of Stephen when he is still Saul, and uh, Saul is persecuting the church. And it does not say that he stoned Stephen, but it does say that after those who stoned Stephen were finished, they would, they would lay their robes at his feet. Like he was the rabbi, he was the teacher, he was the leader, he was the organizer, he was the one getting honor from that act. And so when we first meet him, he's this persecuting, prosecuting rabbi attacking the church. And what we know is, when we know the whole story of Paul, that it's not long before he is the apostolic, missionary, Bible-teaching minister and So let's get a picture of it real quick. So Romans chapter 1, verse 1, when Paul wrote the book of Romans, he starts by talking about the fact that he has been called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. But can we look at the rest of that verse? It talks about how he's, well, maybe not. That's all right. We know that he starts as a blasphemer. He says, I was one who was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. Those are the three words that he uses in a row to describe himself. He says, now I've been called to be an apostle, a missionary, a spreader of the gospel. This is the great change that has taken place in his life from the one who attacked the church to being the apostle who now is planting churches. And where does Paul go from here? Our elders participated in a Bible study of the book of Galatians a couple weeks ago. We were reading through it, and what we discovered, or were reminded of yet again, after Paul was converted, he spent three years in Arabia. There is almost no record of anything that he did in this time. Why? Because when you're a persecuting, prosecuting rabbi, and you're about to become an apostle, there's some shifting to be done, amen? So he has learned all the Old Testament scriptures as a rabbi teacher, but now he has to understand them in light of the one who has revealed himself to him, the living Christ whom he met on the road, right? 
So he's had this Damascus Road experience. His life has been changed. Now he has to process that for three years. And not just for three. The Bible really goes on to say, you know, uh, he, he did that. He came out, met with some of the folks in Jerusalem, went back to the Damascus region, uh, into the uh, Arabian region. And in total, at least 14 years before we see him pop up at the council in Jerusalem. Now, he had been on his first missionary journey by then, so he did not spend it all out there in the desert. But he spent about 11 years before we really get a record of any activity after his conversion. 11 years of preparation, at least. And that doesn't count the preparation that he did as a rabbi learning the Word of God, the Old Testament. I just point that out because I know a lot of Christians who get saved or have got a few years under their belt, or unfortunately, I know some people who've been saved for 30 years, but they still got about two years of maturity under their belt, and they've lived it over and over and over again. It's like a preacher who preaches the same two messages, you know, over and over again. There's, there's got to be spiritual growth. And, and it takes hard work. And Paul has put in the work, and his life has changed. And yet, in 1 Timothy, he still describes himself. He comes out of this years of study. And what does he say about himself? I am the chief of sinners. You know, this reminded me when I was a young man preparing for the ministry. Somebody said to me, you know, Pastor, actually, it was my pastor saying to me, here's, he said, Eddie, here's what you, what you got to remember. He said, you talk to people about, we want to have a worship service where God really shows up. We want to have a worship service where the Holy Spirit comes down. He said, and what most of them thinks is that means you're going to stand up and go, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. He said, here's the real truth. When the Holy Spirit comes down, we have to get down on our knees. We have to get on our faces in repentance and humility before the one who is so awesome. And, and Paul didn't just get converted and say, well, you know, I've been a rabbi, now let me lead the church. He went into preparation for somewhere between 10 and 15 years of really hard work. That's powerful stuff. And what does he say about all that stuff that he invested? Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, he said, what I thought was gain, all that stuff that I thought was important about me, I now count as loss. He says, as a matter of fact, it's like a dung heap cow poop. It is not worth anything. All those things that I thought were so important. My life has changed. There is a life stewardship. I, I followed what I thought was right till God got a hold of me. And now I realize all that stuff in the past, no matter how great the world thought it was, no matter how great the people around me thought I was, it's just dung. That's what he said. And he said, now, because of the change in Jesus Christ has wrought in me, because of that change, I have one thing I do. I press on to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. See, Paul said, now, everything in my life now is about this one thing. It's about Jesus. It's about following after him with all that I have. And matter of fact, he becomes so convinced of this, he would later write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 9, he said, it doesn't matter whether we are at home or absent. Now, you know what he meant when he said that. He didn't mean, you know, my house address. He, he meant whether I'm here on this earth, whether I live 
or whether I die, whether I'm at home or absent, this is what I'm living for, to please Him, to please God, to please my Master. That is life stewardship. Everything, everything He's willing to lay down. And you'll remember His own story. Just as Jesus said, it is finished, Paul at the end of his life in 2 Timothy, those words you, you loved here, I have run my race. I have finished my course. What course is that? The course of his life stewardship. So for this last glance here in our message, the last part. So we've seen Jesus, we've seen Paul. As we prepare to take the supper, I want to talk about us for just a moment. And, and what I have to say from this point on in the message is going to be less didactic and more interrogative. That's a teacher's way of saying, I'm going to tell you less and ask you more. Because it's been shown that quite often people learn better when they wrestle with and arrive at answers themselves. And this is one of the things we need to say about Bible teachers. Sometimes our role is not simply, and frankly, not even primarily, to give answers to questions. In many ways, the role of a good Bible teacher is to help verbalize the questions that are on people's minds and hearts, and then help them to identify where the Bible speaks into that, and encourage them to wrestle with that with the assistance, guidance, and presence of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus Himself. So, if I start with a question like this, our starting question for this series was, how do I practice the stewardship of my life? And some of you are sitting here saying, well, that wasn't really my burning question. I don't ever remember having said, how am I doing at life stewardship? Never heard that phrase until you preached this series. Actually, I want to say for many of you, from what you've said to me, it, it actually was a burning question for you. It's just not the way you put it. Here's how it often gets stated. Do I matter? Does it matter what I do? Does anyone care, really care about my life? Uh, for those of you who are philosophically inclined, you might have thought it this way. What is the true meaning? of life. For those of you who are Rick Warren fans, you may have asked, how can I enjoy a purpose-driven life? For a new disciple, it might be the simple question, how can I live a Christian life? Or perhaps for the more experienced disciple, many of you in this room, this should be our question, how can I walk as Jesus walked? and spend my life for God's purposes? That's life stewardship, brothers and sisters. That's the question for all of us. And from the lives of both Jesus and Paul, we have seen some of the ways the Bible answers the question about what a life lived for God looks like, the amazing quality of a life lived fully devoted to God, what I want us to do is take that one step further, lay out some potential further steps for you, some questions you can wrestle with as you pursue your discovery of a Jesus-centered life on your journey. Because we've looked at Jesus' story and Paul's story, and now I want to ask you, what will your story 
be? How are you going to fulfill the stewardship of your one and only life? And if we're going to talk about that question and some answers that the Bible offers, we're going to do that. But for most of this time, actually, I'm going to give you one question and a few proposed answers, and then I'm just going to give you some other questions to chew on, so for you to wrestle with. So here's the first question we should all ask. What was I created for? What was I created for? What purpose does God have for me? Now, there are a bunch of stuff. You say, well, the Bible doesn't just say that right out for me. Sure it does. He talks about us being called to be, he says, if anyone is called to be my disciple, you remember that verse? You've been called? What does he say to do? Take up your cross and follow him. So maybe you want to find out what that means. There's another place where Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, I call you my friends. So maybe we need to understand what does it mean to be a friend of God. That's John 15, 15. We're called to be, in Romans 1, a holy people. Man, maybe we need to learn what that's about. I was called to be holy. What does that mean? Galatians 5, you're called to be free. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. He didn't set you free so you could be in prison. What does it mean to know the freedom of God? We're going to study that in just a few weeks in our study in Galatians. You may remember Ephesians 2, not only where he says we're saved by grace, not of works, but he goes on to say, and you are God's masterpiece. You are God's workmanship, created unto good works, created to do certain things. You need to understand about that. So the question, what am I created for? And those are some possible answers from the Bible. Every question here, there are biblical responses to. Here's a question for you to ask yourself. What preparation, what preparation have you done? We know Jesus did some. We know Paul did some. What preparation have you gone through to understand and fulfill your life stewardship? Here's another question. What service are you rendering? If you're not serving, you aren't using the gift God gave you, there's no way you're being a good steward of your life. So what service are you rendering? You say, well, I'm not really sure. Study the scriptures. See what the options are. Ask God to enlighten you. Here's one that is less biblical and more for you to reflect on. Are you seizing your opportunities? Are you seizing your opportunities? I want to commend those who are going on the mission trip. Not everybody can do it, but I want to commend you for seizing some opportunities to serve and to touch the lives of men and women, brothers and sisters in other places. And then the last question that I would just put out there for you to chew on, how will you finish well? How can you do that? Because remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 9, I don't want to get to the end so that after I have preached, I myself am disqualified. Don't want that. Don't want that. How do you finish well and not fall into disqualification? So remember how we started today. There will come a day when each of us gives an account of our lives individually, and we live in an accountability for how we do life together. Do you want to be, like the Bible says in Matthew 25, has two different examples there's the one who does right, and he says, enter in, well done, good and faithful servant. And what does he say to the other folks? He says, depart from me, I never knew you, right? Now, again, I, I don't want to apply this to our salvation, so I, I want to be careful you understand that. That was a parable he was teaching, uh, so I, I, want to, I want to be wise about what I'm saying here with you. But what I'm saying to you is there is an evaluation that's done. 
Jesus has saved us, what are we doing with what he has now given to us? And I want you to reflect on that as we share in the supper together. I want to invite our deacons and others who are serving us today, come on forward if you would please. And um, I want us to reflect today as we are receiving Mark and uh, uh, the gang, or Mark and three of the, the trio here is going to come and sing for us. While they're singing, while we're talking about coming to the Lord's table, we want to be reflecting. Are we lukewarm? How, or is God still our first love? Is my life still lived in full stewardship with God? And let's reflect on that as we receive uh, the Lord's um, memorial meal. Let's pray together before it's passed. So, Father, you have entrusted to us this celebration, but you have also entrusted to us our lives to be lived for you. So as we reflect on what you have done for us, help us also to reflect. You told us through Paul's writings, let each one examine himself or herself. So let us reflect as we receive and celebrate together the gift of your memorial meal. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.